It had been one heck of a week for him, and the phone call that he got only served to make matters worse. Because when the phone began to ring, he saw the caller ID on the phone and, and realized exactly what it was going to be. Because you see earlier that week, uh, a family had emailed him and said they had some hard stuff that they wanted to talk to him about. Well, he hung up the phone after the conversation was done and he sat down in his office chair. He put his head in his hands and he began to weep because he was in one of those storms that, well, that ministry in a sinful and broken world can bring. Through his tears, he asked, Jesus, I thought you wanted me to plant a church here. And yet we can't seem to get any traction and people just keep leaving. Don't you care? The text message proved what he had suspected all along. You see, his wife had been spending an increasing amount of time away from home and, and the, the connection that they had was beginning to dwindle. Love had grown cold. Intimacy became non-existent. Communication null and void. He had suspected it. He feared it, but he didn't want it to be true, and yet the text message confirmed it. He was in the midst of a storm of betrayal from someone who was supposed to love him most in this world. His wife was cheating on him. He sat there in his bed, his greatest fear realized. Tears welling up in his eyes, Jesus, you designed this marriage to last. I loved her just as you commanded, and yet now it's broken and all gone. Don't you care? She woke up in the, middle of a night, in the middle of the night with a writhing pain in her abdomen. It was so terrible she could barely move. And at two months pregnant, she suspected what it was. She just didn't want it to be true. In the darkness of night, she got up and went into her bathroom, turned the lights on, and she saw the blood. She knew what had happened. She just didn't want to talk about it or admit it to be true. She called in her husband, and both of them knew. They were experiencing the storm of loss. They had suffered a miscarriage. Sitting silently on the bathroom floor, embracing one another, the only thing breaking the silence was their tears. Silently, the woman prayed, Jesus, this child was supposed to be a gift from you. It was a child whom I loved, and yet now he's gone. Now I'm in an immense amount of pain, and I don't know what to do. Do you even care? A reality of living in the world in which we do, a world that is racked and warped and twisted by sin, is that storms come. We all experience them to some degree or another, and they come at times that are completely unexpected. They're storms that we never want, we never intend to endure and yet those storms come and they wreak untold emotional and mental and physical and spiritual damage. And I was, as I was describing those storms that those three people, different people went through, you know not began to think of your own. The storms that you've gone through in the past, maybe the storm that you're going through right now. And they're difficult, aren't they? Enduring these storms of life. Now as the people of God, we know exactly where we are to run when we're standing in the midst of a storm. That there's only one person who can provide us respite and peace, who 
can provide us safety and security. The one to whom we are to run is the one that the psalmist declared in that psalm that we read, the one who is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. The one we are to go to is, is Jesus when we're in the midst of one of those storms. And for anybody who has experienced a storm in this life, Mark chapter 4 brings really an immense amount of comfort, doesn't it? Because in that gospel, you have disciples in whom you can place yourself right there with them, these disciples who experience this storm and are fearing for their lives. You see the teacher, Jesus, calm this incredible storm with simple yet powerful words, quiet, be still. For many, when they look at that account from Mark chapter 4, they end up interpreting that miracle, something that sounds like this. Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Therefore, he will calm the storm in my life. Have you heard that before? That sound familiar, right? That's a pretty common interpretation of that miracle. But this morning, I, I want to challenge you a little bit. I want to challenge you by asking you, is that interpretation of Jesus' miracle on the Sea of Galilee really the main thing that Jesus wants us to understand? Is interpreting that miracle that Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, therefore he will calm the storm in my life, is that really the best way to understand that miracle? And really at the heart of that challenge is a pretty deep question that has ramifications for your faith. And the question is this, what do you want Jesus to be? Do you want Jesus to be your fixer, or do you want Jesus to be your savior? Do you want Jesus to be primarily focused on calming the storms that you endure in this life, or do you want him to be primarily concerned with solving your spiritual problem, which is sin, which is also the cause of all of the problems that we face in this world? Do you want him to be your savior, or do you want him to be your fixer? You can't have both. And the way in which you answer that question will really inform the way that you look at this miracle from Mark chapter 4. Now, Jesus had been spending a great deal of time around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, he was spending a good chunk of the first part of his ministry in this city called Capernaum. He had been healing their sick. He had been casting out their demon-possessed. And as we heard last week, he was spending a lot of time teaching people about the kingdom of God, the, the way in which God works in this world through his word to create and strengthen faith in the hearts of his people. One day after the teaching was done, Evening had come and he was about to, he wanted to go to the other side of the lake. In fact, that's what he tells his disciples. Hey, let's go to the other side. So the disciples, some of whom were fishermen, they grab a boat that was nearby and they jump into the boat. They grab Jesus as, as he is and they head out across the Sea of Galilee. Now the Sea of Galilee, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a picture of it. The Sea of Galilee is situated in a basin and it's surrounded by mountains. And so the cool Mediterranean air will come and blow through those mountain passes and hit that hot, humid air that hovers above the Sea of Galilee, which makes it a place that's pretty susceptible to storms. And that's exactly what happened that night on the Sea of Galilee. That cool air blew through the mountains, hit that hot air that was hovering above the sea, and a storm rose up. Such a furious storm, in fact, that the waves were crashing over the boat to a point where they thought the boat was going to sink. And where was Jesus in all of this? He's sleeping, sleeping on a cushion in the stern of the boat. And the disciples are fearing for their lives. So they go to Jesus and they say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? 
No, that's ultimately a very natural response, right? When you're in the midst of a storm like that, don't you care if we're going to drown? Because the disciples, they're fearing for their lives. They, they are probably trying to bail water out of the boat to keep themselves from sinking. And all of the while, Jesus is just sleeping. So they go to Jesus, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He didn't seem to be caring because he was sleeping and he wasn't doing anything. But it's telling, isn't it? It's telling who the disciples go to. The disciples go to Jesus and ask him to take care of this storm that they are facing. And that too makes sense because look at everything that the disciples had experienced over the last uh, period of time with Jesus. They watched as he healed a man with an incurable disease. They watched as he gave a man who was paralyzed the ability to walk. They watched as the whole of Capernaum brought all of their sick and demon-possessed to Jesus, and he healed all of their sick, and he cast out all of their demons. They recognized Jesus to be one who had power, more power than any human being could, to solve problems that no human being can. Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? Now they recognize that Jesus has some sort of power. Unfortunately, though, how do they approach Jesus? Not in faith but in fear. Teacher, don't you care? They approached him in fear because had they approached him in faith, especially based on all of the power that they, had see, that they had seen displayed in Capernaum, they would have uttered a statement that sounded something like this. Teacher, we know that you've got power. We've seen it on display. Will you use this power? Will you use this power to calm the storm? They don't approach him in faith. They approach him, approach him in fear. And what is driving that fear? It's their loss of life. They are scared to lose their lives. And that question informs a great deal of what they thought about Jesus too. Right, they come to Jesus because they're scared of losing their earthly life for their earthly life to come to an end. So in asking that question, Jesus, do you care if we drowned? It's in essence asking Jesus, do, are you, do you care if we keep on living? What they're looking at Jesus to be is a fixer. They want Jesus to be someone who fixes and solves all of their earthly problems, especially that problem that they're having right here in this moment. And all of that is just driven by fear, which is exactly how we approach Jesus too when we find ourselves in, the, in one of these storms of life, right? When the storms of relational ruin come, Jesus, don't you care that I am lonely and drowning in, in the, these feelings of not being loved? When the storms of career upheaval or even career stress come your way, Jesus, don't you care that I am overworked and underpaid and I have so much stress that I'm bringing it all home and it's coming out against my family? Don't you care? When a health crisis hits and the wind and the waves of uncertainty hit, Jesus, don't you care that the doctors don't quite know what's going on and I'm drowning in this diagnosis and I, I just don't know what to do and I don't know if I'll ever recover? When we react like that, we are acting the same way that the disciples did that day on the boat. We are not acting out of faith. We are acting out of fear. Jesus, don't you care at all? When we act like that, what are we primarily concerned about? The here and now. We're primarily concerned about our earthly life. Jesus, don't you care about about letting me live a little bit longer? Don't you care about me being happy and healthy? Don't you care about 
about me not bringing home the stress from work? Don't you care about me having these healthy relationships? But I want you to understand this. Of course, Jesus cares about that. But when you are approaching Jesus in fear, do you know the one thing you are not doing? You're not approaching him in faith. When you approach Jesus in fear, you are not approaching him in faith. When you approach Jesus in fear, you are not trusting in who he is and what he has promised for you. When you are approaching Jesus in fear, Jesus needs to chide you and me the same way he does to the disciples after he calms the storm. Do you remember what he says to them? The storm is calmed and they're still terrified about what might still happen on the lake. He says, why are you still afraid? Do you still have no faith? When you approach Jesus in fear and not in faith, and you ask that question, Jesus, do you care? In essence, what you are doing is you are asking Jesus to be something that he is not, to do something that he never promised, and to fix things that he never said he would. Now, I mentioned earlier in the beginning of the sermon that most of the time when you and I look at these parables, or these, uh, this miracle from Mark chapter 4, and honestly, a lot of the sermons I've heard on Mark chapter 4, even one that I looked at that I preached a handful of years ago, tend to approach this sermon like this. If Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, then he will calm the storms of my life. But not only is that a really short-sighted view of Jesus, but it is also uh, purely focused on our life in the here and now. When you ask, uh, or when you come to, uh, to an interpretation of that miracle like that, that Jesus' display of power in the Sea of Galilee means that he is going to pour out his power in your life and fix all of the earthly problems that you have, what you are doing is you are asking Jesus to be the same thing that the disciples were asking him to be. You are asking him to be a fixer, to make your life better, to make your life easier. The issue, though, is that never once, anywhere in Scripture, has Jesus promised to fix all of our earthly problems. Never anywhere in scripture has Jesus promised that faith is the assurance that you will no longer face a storm in this life. Not at all. The hard part, though, is that an interpretation of a miracle like this is not only appealing to you and me who so often are standing in the midst of storms, but it's also the kind of God that people want to believe in, right? The God that makes their life easier, the God that solves all of the earthly problems in the here and now, the God that is their fixer. But here's the reality, the reality of the, the real reason why Jesus puts all of his power on display in the Sea of Galilee for his disciples. It's to show them that he didn't come to be their fixer, but he came to wield his power as their savior. That he didn't come to give them an easier life in this world, he came to give them a better life in the next. There's a distinct difference there. Do you understand that? That his primary care and concern for you is not the betterment of your life in this world, but that you spend an eternity with him in a far better world in heaven. That's his primary concern. And by Jesus displaying that kind of power for his disciples, what he was doing was showing them, hey, everything that I've said about myself is true. I am who I say I am. Though the disciples don't even get that, do they? Right, because right after that miracle of Jesus calming the storm, what do the disciples ask? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey them. The disciples, they don't have the answer, but 
But when Mark records that question, what he is doing is he's begging us to go all the way back to the beginning of his gospel to the very first verse. Who is it that controls the wind and the waves? It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But the very one who stood on that boat, calming the wind and the waves with those words, be or quiet, be still, is the same one who was there at the beginning of time, speaking the wind and the waves into being with his word. That the one who calmed the storm for his disciples is the very one who proves that he has power over all creation by that miracle. And by showing his disciples that he has power over all creation, what he is doing is showing them that his power far exceeds the small earthly problems that we face in this life. That he came with power to deal with the one thing that you and I as human beings could never deal with on our own. To deal with our eternal storm. To deal with sin and death and the devil and to bring them all under his submission. The one who wields the power to calm the storm is the only one who is powerful enough to withstand every temptation that creation could throw at him. The one who is powerful enough to tell the wind and the waves to cease and come no further is the only one who has the power to live a holy life that conforms to the perfect law of God. The one who commands the wind and the waves to stop. He's the only one. He's the only one who could utter those powerful words from the cross that is finished. All of it. Your sin, your enemy Satan, and death itself. By that display of power on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus proves that he didn't come to be your fixer, but rather that he came to be your savior. Now, I don't want you to, to walk away from this sermon on Mark chapter 4 thinking that, thinking that Jesus doesn't care when you and I are standing in the midst of storms in this life. Because this account, it certainly shows us that he does, doesn't it? That Jesus rescues his disciples, keeps them from drowning, Jesus certainly cares when you're standing in the midst of storms. And do you know why that is? Well, the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus is our brother. When one of your family members is suffering, what do you do? You comfort them, you console them, you empathize with them, you hurt for them, you cry with them. Well, the way that you feel when one of your family members is suffering is the way that your brother Jesus feels when you are standing in the midst of one of those storms. The temptation is always to ask, does Jesus actually care that I'm going through all of this? The answer is, of course he does. Jesus cares about every aspect of your life, your whole being. He cares about the pastor who is stuck in the storms of ministry in this, in this messy and broken world. And do you know why he cares? Because he himself carried out ministry in this messy and broken world. Jesus weeps with the husband who was betrayed by, his, by the one who was supposed to love him most. And do you know why he weeps like for him or, and with him? Because he himself was betrayed by someone whom he loved. Jesus mourns with the mother who lost a child due to a miscarriage. And do you know why he mourns? Because Jesus himself experienced what it was like to lose someone that he loves. Of course, Jesus cares. Of course he cares when you and I stand in the storms of this life. But the way he shows his care for you is far more profound than fixing all of the earthly problems that we have. The way that he shows he cares for you was by taking that care and wielding his power all the way to death. He wielded his power in such a way that he walked all the way to the cross, 
and laid down his life. He waded into the storm of your sin to vanquish death, to conquer Satan, and to tell your sin that you no longer hold any power over my brothers and sisters. Because Jesus cared for you in this way, by demonstrating how much power he actually has, every time that Satan says to you, you're guilty of your sin, I'm accusing you and you deserve death, Jesus says to Satan, quiet, be still. You hold no power over my brothers and sisters. When death comes for all of us, and it will come at some point, Jesus says to death itself, this far you may come and no farther. I've cared for my brothers and sisters so much that I paid for that death, and they will live even though they die. Jesus' care and love for you is so profound that he used all of his power to win for you the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. I can hardly think of a better way to be cared for than that, not to fix all of our earthly problems which come and go like the blowing of a storm, but to fix the one problem that is permanent unless somebody else deals with it for us. While we are standing in the midst of whatever storm that we are in, whatever that storm is for you, Jesus calls us to trust on him ever more deeply. And by trusting in the one who displayed the power over that storm, the one who has power over sin and death and all creation, what he is asking you to do is to reorient the way that you think about life. That life is not about the small hardships that we face in this life. But Jesus points you forward to the world to come where he has assured you that there is a better life waiting, one where storms will no longer touch you. He cared for you that much. He was willing to calm that storm and show to his disciples and lead them to understand who he really is. That he is the God who came into this world to live for you, to die for you, and to rise for you. And when given the choice, a choice between whether you want Jesus to be your fixer or to be your savior, a heart that is rooted in biblical Christianity, a heart that is rooted in all of the promises that your God makes you, it will always choose Savior. Cling to that Christ, the solid rock on which your faith stands, and trust that he will lead you safely through all of the storms of this life to the shores of heaven. God grant it. Amen.